Welcome everyone to another of our regularly scheduled reruns. Right now, members are enjoying not one, but two bonus episodes. I've mentioned recently that there have been a lot of voicemails in response to the bonus material, so we did a whole feedback episode just to address a lot of those voicemails, not all of them, uh, but we also wanted to talk about this other idea I had recently, uh, so we had to just do two shows. Uh, the idea uh, that I wanted to address was how the built and natural environments shape the people that we become. Sort of a big concept, but uh, we talked about a few different examples and thought about for instance, what impacts cities have on the people who live there. Like if you commute every day through Penn Station, one of the worst transit centers on the planet, uh, then how is your life different and measurably worse than someone who commutes by bicycle every day in Copenhagen, just for example? And what kind of value should we as a society put on that while we're writing our budgets and crafting our tax policy? So it's a really good conversation. I think it is well worth your time. Uh, today's rerun, though, is also an interesting one. I found this episode that I had completely forgotten about, to be honest, uh, that I produced in November 2016, pretty soon after the election, that very explicitly, yet very carefully, that's an important note, compares Trump with Hitler just to see what, if anything, could be gleaned from the comparison. Can we learn anything from it? Uh, are we heading towards fascism? Are we even one step down the road to fascism? And how could you avoid it? And how could you recognize it if you were? So I thought it would be a good one to go back to one year after the inauguration to see how the episode holds up and what it makes us think about the, after this year we've just had. So have a listen to this breakdown of how to avoid fascism. And if you want to get in on all of the members content, sign up with us at patreon.com slash best of a left. And keep in mind that this is a great time to join because our winter fundraiser is in its final days as January ticks down. So get your donations into my climate ride and become a member on Patreon by the end of the month to receive your free Best of Life apparel made from recycled plastic bottles. All of the details you can find either on Patreon or uh, by clicking on the Winter Fundraiser banner at the top of bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy. It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, she said, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, The Trump Cast, The Daily Show, In Deep with Angie Coiro, and the Tom Hartman program. Now, I'm starting today by taking a big step back to give some context. This first clip is from NPR way back on March 10th of 2006. It's about former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. And I want to say right now, right up front, before we get started, that I put myself squarely in the O'Connor School of Thought on dictatorships. An abundance of caution with an eye on the future. 
And I know many may take offense to the comparisons made in today's episode, but I really want to stress that I have gone out of my way to find people speaking with a great deal of nuance on this topic, and the comparisons are not made lightly or to fearmonger, but to draw real lessons from the past for use in our current situation. So while you listen to this first report from 2006, think about the modern-day Republicans' nakedly partisan effort to prevent a new Supreme Court justice from being appointed during Barack Obama's term while their party simultaneously nominated a candidate with the most autocratic tendencies we have ever seen in this country. Supreme Court justices keep many opinions private, but a former justice is speaking out. Yesterday, Sandra Day O'Connor criticized Republicans who criticized the courts. She said the critics challenged the independence of judges and the freedoms of all Americans. Her speech at Georgetown University was not available for broadcast, but NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg was there. In an unusually forceful and forthright speech, O'Connor said that attacks on the judiciary by some Republican leaders pose a direct threat to our constitutional freedoms. O'Connor began by conceding that courts do have the power to make presidents or the Congress or governors, as she put it, really, really angry. But, she continued, if we don't make them mad some of the time, we probably aren't doing our jobs as judges. And our effectiveness, she said, is premised on the notion that we won't be subject to retaliation for our judicial acts. The nation's founders wrote repeatedly, she said, that without an independent judiciary to protect individual rights from the other branches of government, those rights and privileges would amount to nothing. But, said O'Connor, as the Founding Fathers knew, statutes and constitutions don't protect judicial independence, people do. And then she took aim at former House GOP leader Tom DeLay. She didn't name him, but she quoted his attacks on the courts at a meeting of the conservative Christian group Justice Sunday last year when DeLay took out after the courts for rulings on abortion, prayer, and the Terry Schiavo case. This, said O'Connor, was after the federal courts had applied Congress's one-time-only statute about Schiavo as it was written, not, said O'Connor, as the congressman might have wished it were written. The response to this flagrant display of judicial restraint, said O'Connor, her voice dripping with sarcasm, was that the congressman blasted the courts. It gets worse, she said, noting that death threats against judges are increasing. It doesn't help, she said, when a high-profile senator suggests there may be a connection between violence against judges and decisions that the senator disagrees with. She didn't name him, but it was Texas Senator John Cornyn who made that statement after a Georgia judge was murdered in the courtroom and the family of a federal judge in Illinois murdered in the judge's home. O'Connor observed that there have been a lot of suggestions lately for so-called judicial reforms, recommendations for the massive impeachment of judges, stripping the courts of jurisdiction, and cutting judicial budgets to punish offending judges. Any of these might be debatable, she said, as long as they are not retaliation for decisions that political leaders disagree with. I, said O'Connor, am against judicial reforms driven by nakedly partisan reasoning. Pointing to the experiences of developing countries and former communist countries where interference with an independent judiciary has allowed dictatorship to flourish, O'Connor said we must be ever vigilant against those who would strong-arm the judiciary into adopting their preferred policies. It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, she said, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington.
My guest today is Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of history at Yale, specializing in Eastern and Central European history, and the author of several books, including Bloodlands and Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. Tim, welcome to the show. Glad to talk to you. So your piece in Slate begins, his election that November came as a surprise. And what you do in that piece is you narrate aspects of Hitler's rise to power in Germany without using any proper nouns. And it turns out that a lot of that description comes pretty close to applying to the phenomenon of Donald Trump. There's, you know, once I submitted that piece to you, I realized there was more. I mean, two sentences in the, fir- in the first paragraph could have read, his popularity seemed to have peaked. Another one could have read, it appeared that the nation was on its way out of economic crisis. There are an awful lot of echoes. But what I was after there was, was trying to find a middle way between historical analogy and dismissing history altogether. Because, of course, on the one hand, it's right that history doesn't repeat itself. Um, but on the other hand, we're often too quick to use that cliche or to say, you know, that's just an analogy and then find a flaw with it. We're often too quick to do those things and or not think about history at all. History shows a range of possibility. If a thing can happen, that means it must have been able to happen. History broadens our imagination, I think, about what's possible. It also helps us to see patterns and processes. We're having a, we're having a hard time with processes these days. We, we, both, we move from flash to flash, event to event. We're, we're shocked all the time, but we have a little trouble putting all the pieces together. So what I was after in that essay was, was trying to recall that this event that we think we understand, Hitler, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, and so on, was also a process with some accidents, with some contingencies, with some places where things might have gone in a different direction, but above all, a, a, a process where people could have and failed to say no at certain points. You know, a lot of people do have the reaction. I mean, you do something that is quite incendiary here. You do it in a very measured way. But a lot of people say you just shouldn't make comparisons to Hitler for a lot of reasons, either because it has the effect of, of diminishing the, the uniqueness of Hitler's crimes or because, you know, in the sort of people refer to Godwin's law, it just sort of ends the conversation. Once there's a comparison to Hitler, it's sort of hard to say much of anything else except people end up yelling at each other. It's not, you think, the thing is, you know, I mean, the, it's not a comparison, I guess, is the point. So it, a comparison is when we say Hitler was X and Trump is Y and, you know, Y is a little bit like X. A comparison takes two static things and says they're like each other or they're not like each other. It looks at the differences or the similarities. A comparison is usually anti-historical, right? So, I mean, as a historian, I, I usually get annoyed by comparisons, too. But what what I'm after here is is to try to get us out of that impulse of, of of either quickly accepting or quickly rejecting a comparison or comparisons as such, and helping us to think our way into alternative perspectives, which I think is helpful because we don't really know what our perspective is right now. We don't know um, who the person we've elected is. We don't know what what is being planned, right? We we have we have we we have guesses about how our institutions will will react, but we don't really have any idea because our institutions have never been tested the way they're going to be tested now. So I I I, I think it's it's a mistake to to toss out the baby with the bathwater, and you know, in the interest of, of purity of concepts, um, stop thinking about about history in entirely. I guess the second thing I would say about comparing. And and Hitler, even though this is not what I'm after, I mean, in this in this piece, I try very hard, you know, to do something different. It's really important to remember that Hitler happened in history, 
and that when Hitler was happening in history, people were trying to figure him out at the time, and they were making all kinds of comparisons as a way to do so, right? Was Hitler like Mussolini? Was Hitler like Stalin? You know, was, was Hitler another big spender? Was Hitler another nationalist? Was Hitler this? Was Hitler that? Everyone who was trying to understand Hitler was making, you know, was making comparisons themselves, and people have been doing it ever, ever, ever since. There's nothing holy about or unholy about doing it. What I would say is that, you know, we have an advantage over those people in the 1930s, and our advantage is that we have the processes of the 20th century behind us. We can look at them. We don't have to be surprised by the fact that modern institutions or educated people can throw up authoritarianism or tyrants. There's no reason for us to be surprised by that because it's happened over and over again. So I think it'd be a mistake to just toss away that advantage. Um, you know, reading this, I realized how little I actually know about about the rise of Hitler and, and those years. I just wanted to ask you a little more about that. I mean, you write one of the lines in your piece, you say, various right-wing elites preserved their calm. Although they had failed to keep him from power, they were sure that they could control him. Does that describe the attitude of President Hindenburg and, and other people on the non-Nazi German right when, when Hitler was uh, in, in 1932 before and after the election? I'm, I'm really glad you, you asked that question because it, in a way it casts light on, on, on the previous one. So let me just say a word about that before, before I answer it. We often forget the steps that had to be taken for Hitler come to, to Hitler further come to power. What we often do is we freeze frame the Second World War or we freeze frame Auschwitz or, or Treblinka or the Holocaust as a whole, and we say, well, that hasn't happened, therefore not to worry, which, which tends to make me and I think some, some other historians at least a little bit crazy, because in order to get to you know, in order to get to the Second World War, in order to get to, to, to the Holocaust, a whole series of things had to happen. And it's those things that ought to be, we ought to be thinking about, not because they're exactly the same, but because they might offer us some purchase on our own reactions, on how we might be behaving. So yes, it's exactly right that Hitler was a kind of, people thought of him at the time as a kind of rabble-rousing politician. People thought of him as having certain gifts, but as having limited gifts. The people who were older than he was, or the people who were more experienced in politics, the people who had traditional political parties, believed that they under, could, could understand him within their own terms, and they were wrong. And the people who formed up, who were responsible for forming up the government that he would be the head of, believed that they would be able to manipulate him, get him in and out of power as they wished, you know, ride on the appeal of his movement as long as they wanted to, and then stop. And, and they proved to be mistaken. So, yeah, I mean, Hitler had just lost to Hindenburg in presidential elections. Von Papen, you know, would be would be the crucial character. People from the German far right who were instrumental in seeing Hitler come to power, but then found themselves faced with something they didn't understand. And then to jump ahead, because I don't know what your next question is going to be, the, the crucial thing is that not long after Hitler came to power, there was a crisis, which was the Reichstag fire, um, the act of terrorism in, in the peace. And so then you get two surprises in a row, one surprise being a kind of unknown person who's given the reins to power, and then the other surprise being, a, being what seems like an external shock, which seems to break all the rules and justify novelty. That, you know, we, we know not just from the example of Hitler, but from all kinds of other examples, that's a very powerful combination. And I'm, I'm, in, in, you, in talking about Germany in the 1930s, I'm just trying, I'm trying to stress that that tends to act on people in similar ways over time. Yeah. Um, it's, you mentioned the Reichstag fire. You refer to that as sort of the terrorist attack in the piece. 
there's still historical debate, right, about whether that was deliberate um, sabotage by whether Hitler set it up or whether it was an ac- actual sabotage. I guess people now think Hitler didn't set it up, but he used it. Is that what is that what the historical consensus is now? So let me answer that in three ways. I'm going to say what the historical consensus is, and, and then I'm going to say why it doesn't really matter so much who's right, and then I'm going to say a word about the present. The historical consensus is indeed that, that the Reichstag fire was started by a lone Dutch anarchist, as Hitler and the Germans at the time said that it was. I mean, as everyone probably will know, what happens in the Reichstag fire is that this then becomes the occasion for Hitler to declare a state of emergency, which is then enforced for the entire remainder of his life and, and of his power. It's enforced until until 1945. That um, means the de facto end of parliament, the de facto end of, of political party life as the leaders of other parties are put in camps and so on. So it's a really decisive moment. But historians think, as you say, that it probably was just an accident. I mean, I just say a contingency that he reacted to it. However, there, there are there are there is some revisionist work which suggests quite the opposite that it had been planned um, and that and that the, the Nazis reacted so swiftly because they knew it was coming. But my second point is that it doesn't really matter so much. I mean, it, it would change if, if we were if we're all convinced that 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 Hitler had in fact planned the Reichstag fire. That wouldn't add so much to his catalog of evil, really. You know, given what we know, what, what's crucial is the way that leaders and people react to something like that. And Hitler was able to use um, the event, however it arrived, as a justification for a fundamental and really rapid transformation of of the system. And it, it's it's that point that one has to watch out for, which brings me up to the present. I mean, given the circumstances in which, just given the raw circumstances in which we live, it's quite possible that there will be some kind of major terrorist attack, God forbid, on American soil in, in the next four years. And just how that happens, you know, we're probably not going to know at the time. Will it be that that ISIS sees precisely American polarization at the moment as a good reason to try to attack? Will it be that ISIS or someone else finds General Flynn provocative and therefore tries to go after the United States? Will it be that, you know, in a slightly nastier and more dubious combination, other people um, who are not Islamic terrorists at all set up something to look like it's Islamic terrorists? Whatever it is, we're not going to know on the day that it happens. And, and whatever it is, you know, the threat, the threat to the system is going to be the same. The possibility that, that the government decides that this means we have to have some kind of permanent emergency. If you meet with these historians, I'll tell you what to say. Tell them that the Nazis never really went away. They're out there burning houses down and peddling racist lies. And we'll never rest again. Until every Nazi dies. Let's get back to real life, or whatever we're calling this thing now. Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. And it's a confusing time, but luckily, we've got news experts. Trump won, so what now? We have no idea what Trump is going to do. We may not know who we're getting. There is a great unknown about what Donald Trump is going to do. Nobody on the planet knows what Donald Trump's going to do. That's true. Nobody on the planet knows what Donald Trump's going to do, including Donald Trump. (laughs) He's making it up as he goes along. His presidency is basically going to be a high-stakes improv scene. All right, folks, I need a character and a location and something much better than Obamacare. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not surprised that people are terrified at the prospect of a Trump presidency. I mean, you've probably heard of many Americans saying they want to move to Canada. 
you know, which is slightly presumptuous in my opinion. You know, like Canada is just going to wave you in. <laughs> you realize that Canada has very strict immigration policy. To be eligible, you have to name at least six cities in Canada, which is actually pretty easy. I mean, it's, there's Vancouver, there's Montreal, uh, Quebec, uh, Toronto, um, Nickelback, Celine Dion. Cool. So anyway, <laughs> since Trump's victory, you realize I've been asked that question by many people. A man in the audience asked me that today. Whether or not I'm going to run away back to South Africa, which I find slightly ironic. You know, before Trump, there were people who hated me who were saying, go back to Africa. Now it's people who like me saying, you should go back to Africa, man. <laughs> you should really go back to Africa. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, here's the thing. Running to Africa won't necessarily shield me from Trumpness. Because remember, when I first started hosting The Daily Show, I said, Donald Trump reminds me of an African dictator. And we had the evidence to back it up. I am the one who has got the money. I made a tremendous amount of money. My people have great praise for me. People love me. Everybody loves me. I have got a very good brain. God helped me by giving me a certain brain. We will win. We will be winning all the time. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. Yeah, remember that? Remember that, right? And, and that's what I said. It reminds me of an African... Although, I, I will admit, now I feel like I owe African dictators an apology. Uh, you know, they were probably watching this election like, no, 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 no. I might kill people, but to grab someone by the pussy, no, 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 no. I have the column. I have the column, huh? What kind of a man grabs it? You touch it, maybe you rub it, huh? Why are you grabbing it? Maybe your hands are small, that's why you have to grab, eh? No, 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 no. Now, the thought, the thought of Donald Trump as a dictator was funnier when him in power was hypothetical. But then, America decided to shake things up, and now it seems like the best place for you to find the answers about a possible future lie in the third world, which I know can be hard for a lot of people because you usually look to the third world only when you want to guilt trip your kids when they hate their Christmas presents. You know, well, I'm sure some kids in Africa would love to get this educational computer game, Timmy. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I, I know that hearing about foreign politics can sometimes be drier than Marco Rubio's tongue, but, but bear with me here, bear with me here. Looking at leaders like him may be the only way to figure out Donald Trump. And I'm thinking specifically of my home country, South Africa, also known as the one African country you can easily find on the map. Right? Yeah, it's just like, Africa, uh, there. Cool. <laughs> Up until a few years ago, our economy was humming. Tourism was thriving. And we, too, were celebrating our first black president. You remember that feeling? Yeah, yeah, you know that feeling? Basically, times were good. After 27 years, Nelson Mandela walked out of Victor Forster prison today. The 2010 FIFA World Cup will be organized in yeah! South Africa. South Africa's Oscar Pistorius won the day. Oscar Pistorius is the Paralympic champion. Oh, man. So many good memories. I was in the crowd when the Simba thing was happening. That was... <laughs> yeah, we had to stop doing that because the next year he dropped the cup. It was... Anyway, <laughs> the point is things were looking up for us as a nation. 
But unfortunately, in the last few years, things have taken a turn for the worse. The economy has stalled. Unemployment is at record highs. Government corruption is rampant. And it wasn't just Oscar Pistorius who disappointed us. Just last year, Simba was arrested for securities fraud. (laughs) Yes, so why did this all happen? Well, I'll tell you why. Because South African voters decided to shake things up. And so we elected a man by the name of Jacob Zuma, a charismatic anti-establishment president. And I I know you can't relate, but bear with me, bear with me. You see, the inept self-serving way that Zuma has run his administration has turned South Africa from a rising power to a very troubled state. And the reason I'm telling you this is that because when you look at Zuma and Trump, it seems like they're brothers from another mother. In South Africa, that country's high court says the nation's president, Jacob Zuma, should face more than 700 corruption and fraud charges. Donald Trump has over 400 lawsuits against him right now. Zuma is building his reputation as the man of the people. Donald Trump is a man of the people. Jacob Zuma's most avid supporters can be found in rural areas and townships. His supporters are... uh, overwhelmingly rural area voters. He was also charged and then acquitted of rape. He has a rape status conference with a judge coming up. Jacob Zuma was called the Teflon politician. I've said it time and time again, he is the Teflon Don. Yep. Just like my president, Donald Trump appears to be Teflon. Literally Teflon though. I think that's what he's spraying on his face. (laughs) That's why it looks so strange. And, And now look, all of these similarities are amusing on the surface. What's more important is understanding what a leader like this could mean for America. For instance, let's let's just look at what Donald Trump said just this week. The president-elect says he plans to place his company in a blind trust to be run by his children, but the legal experts say the definition of a blind trust is that it's run by people not in contact with the owner. Yeah, it's a bit weird that we have to say this, but uh, Donald, the point of a blind trust is that you can't see where your money is. It reassures the country that their president isn't making decisions for his own financial gain. If your kids, who you talk to every day, are running the trust, then it's not blind. You see, it's the difference between Ray Charles and Jamie Foxx playing Ray Charles, (laughs) right? One of them is blind, and one of them is faking it and getting rich in the process. We saw the same thing in South Africa. Jacob Zuma started off like this. He's like, oh, my kids are gonna run businesses. And they do, they also run businesses. And then those businesses have won billions in inflated government contracts, which has cost the taxpayer millions and billions of dollars, and they screwed the economy. So so, so what's another one of uh, Donald Trump's signature moves? If I win, I am going to instruct my attorney general to get a special prosecutor to look into your situation. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Oh. (laughs) I wonder if... (laughs) We're probably gonna have to cut this, but I'm like, can his dealer get to the White House? Whatever. (laughs) So, uh, so Trump using prosecution to intimidate his opponents, it might seem like a a novel thing in the US, uh, but just like soccer, you might wanna get used to it. You see, it's called state capture hijacking state resources for your personal benefits. And by the way, the term state capture, we didn't know that term in South Africa until this year. Now we just use it in common, like everyone's just like, ah, state capture, yeah, state capture, state capture. It's become a normal thing because in South Africa, it's a tactic that Zuma has exploited again and again. For instance, this year, 
when the finance minister of South Africa called out our president for illegal business dealings, Zuma ordered our FBI to prosecute the finance minister on dubious charges. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, we don't call them the FBI. Our agency is called the Hawks, right? And before that, we called them the Scorpions. Uh, and yes, I know our law enforcement agencies sound like gangs in a bootleg West Side story, but <laughs> we like it. It makes us feel at home. Uh, you know, it's, 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 not only, it's not only great for intimidating your rivals as well. It's also good because it distracts the people from the problems you're having. And now I'm not saying that Donald Trump will do that, but if he does, you guys owe me 20, right? <laughs> for everything that you look at, Zuma and Trump even feel the same way about the media. Even the media. They think they know me better. No, the people of this country know me better than they do. And the media are among the most dishonest people anywhere at any time. But they can't stop us. They've tried to tell people how useless this man is. They write lies. They write false stories. They know they're false. It makes no difference. That's, 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 a, that's a problem of the media and whoever else is behind the media. The election is being rigged by corrupt media pushing completely false allegations and outright lies. It's exactly the same. It's almost like when they leave the house, Melania's like, okay, Donald, I do Michelle's ones, you take the African guy's lines, okay? <laughs> you see, when you're the head of government and you're trying to get away with a free press is not your friend. It's the reason that President Zuma has been trying for years to get the legal power to censor South African press. Or as Donald Trump would so eloquently say, We're gonna open up those libel laws so that when the New York Times writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, we can sue them and win money. So we're gonna open up those libel laws, folks, and we're gonna have people sue you like you never got sued before. Yeah! I love the crowd cheering like they're getting the money. We're all getting the money! Yeah! Now, now again, I'm not saying that Trump's definitely gonna do that. But if it's true, I'm not gonna be able to say that later on. So I may as well say it now. Now, luckily, Zuma hasn't been able to muzzle the press in South Africa, right? Because he doesn't have control of South Africa's court system. That is a big hindrance to him, but uh, a hindrance that El Trumpo may not have to face. He's gonna be filling the lower courts. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of district court vacancies, federal court of appeals vacancies, and these are the courts that actually decide the vast majority of litigation in the United States. At least one Supreme Court justice, maybe as many as four. Trump will potentially shape the court for a generation. Now look, there are many differences and many similarities, and I'm not saying it's going to be the same here as it is in a third world country. Of course not. I'm saying, it could be much worse. You write another line from your piece, global conspiracies were supposedly directed at his country and its uniquely righteous people. You know, one of the things that just seemed absolutely chilling to me was in the closing days of the campaign when Trump started to give these speeches that actually talked about international finance in conspiratorial terms and then ran ads before the election that just had this litany of Jewish names. I mean, you don't know what else to say about it except that they were the classic tropes of, of anti-Semitism and not just of any anti-Semitism, of, of Hitler's anti-Semitism. It, it, it's when it come, in a way, it comes back to your original question about comparison. 
I mean, when people point swastikas on walls, right, they're making a comparison and, and all the goodwill in the world by, you know, by, by thoughtful people like you and me can't make that comparison disappear, right? Like in some sense, it's being made for us. If people, right, you know, make America white again and, you know, have swastikas or if, if, if people, you know, as, as they just did after this rally in Washington, shout hail to victory, which of course is American English for Zig Heil, when people do that, the comparison is already being made, you know, and no amount of historical political correctness is going to make that comparison wash away. You know, the, the, you, we can't we can't stop it just by by by, by pussyfooting around our, our, ourselves. Now, yeah, I, I mean, at the specific level, I agree. I mean, there there are quite there are quite specific tropes, national socialist tropes, like the idea that one's enemies are in league with the hidden hands of history, which are usually presented as Jewish. That that turns up the idea that Hillary Clinton, you know, makes history by by meeting offshore with, you know, unnamed leaders of finance. That for anyone who spends a lot of time working on national socialism or fascism, that sounds awfully familiar. And of course, you know, the the idea that politics is essentially about the protection of, of one people against international forces, and that there aren't really rules about this, that it's just a matter of, you know, just a matter of the righteousness of, 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 of the homeland and its people. That, that's also, that also has a very strong whiff of the 1930s. But I would say, you know, I'd make a point which is even stronger, maybe, even where you know, it's not exactly, I mean, it's striking, as you say, that sometimes one is confronted with ideas that just are exactly like ideas of the 1930s. But even when they're not exactly like the 1930s, it's worth noting the general pattern. There's a there's an important break between people who think that politics is about rules and that there are rules here and there are rules abroad and that one might improve them or reform them and so on. But there are basically rules, and those rules will lead us along towards prosperity and freedom. And people who say, no, in fact, it's all a struggle. The rules are there to be broken. Life is constantly a state of exception. You know, I'm an exceptional person. I come from nowhere. I'm going to lead you to the truth. I'm, I'm your voice. We're going to break the rules at home and abroad. That's going to, and that's going to bring something better, right? There's a pretty fundamental break in the two styles of politics. And, you know, we find ourselves sliding pretty, pretty quickly towards the second. Yeah, I think you were referring a minute ago to this gathering that happened in Washington over the weekend of, of this alt-right gathering. I think the group is technically called the National Policy Institute. They have an innocuous name. But this guy, I mean, first of all, they were saying Heil victory and giving the Nazi salute. This is three blocks from the White House in, in a federal office building, which they've rented. But uh, the, the part that made me think of you was that the Richard Spencer, who's the leader of this organization, gave this after-dinner speech. And he said, and this is according to the report in the New York Times, he's ranting about the mainstream media. And he said, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German. And the audience screamed back in, in unison, Lugenpresse. I don't know. Is that how you pronounce it? Lying press. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot, a lot is going on sort of in and around journalism, which is symptomatic of, of, of the big problem we're facing. So let me, let me just take this a little bit more broadly. In, in fascism, there isn't really truth. There isn't really enlightenment. There, isn't, there aren't really facts and evidence. In, in, in fascism, you, know, you start from will and emotion and fantasy and myth. You know, your idea of greatness is primarily an aesthetic idea. It's not built up on structural foundations that you've, you know, investigated and, 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 and verified. It's primarily a kind of vision of greatness, which then you will try, then you will cast yourselves after it, you know, by way of armies or by way of rhetoric or, or something or other. So fascism, you know, the first time around, 
was inherently hostile to to the press, not just because the press represented different. I mean, what the, what fascism said about the press was that it lied, you know, as in that as in that cliche, or that the press was all owned by Jews, right? That's what that's what they said. But there was something deeper going on, which is that fascism can't really tolerate a culture where people are trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> I mean, fascism can't really handle individuals who are trying to figure things out for themselves on the basis of facts or with the help of other people who are who are trying to understand the world on on the basis of facts. And so what you have, you know, now which is which is distressing is this kind of encirclement of um of journalism on many sides, you know, not just on the extreme right, by people who refer to it as the mainstream media, therefore categorizing it as just sort of one more slice of truth or one more slice of, you know, fiction perhaps among others, right? And therefore there's, and, and, and where this leads, you know, is, is, is to this, is this conclusion that there's not really any truth. And, and of course, you know, one can, one can talk until the cows come home about what truth is, but there's a fundamental difference between punting on truth completely, which is part of the fascist position and thinking, you know, it's difficult to get absolute truth or perfect truth or uncontroversial truth or objective truth. But what we should be trying to do is figure things out. Those are two very different positions. So, you know, when, when, when Nazis today, or in 1933, called the press the Lügenpresse, these are the ultimate stakes. You know, is there truth or is there not truth? Because if there's not truth, you know, that opens the way towards the notion that everything is really a struggle. We can say what we want. Our words are just one more weapon, you know, in this struggle for victory. They don't, they don't attempt to describe the world. They're, just, they're only about changing the world so that the world becomes more like this racial struggle that we think it really ought to be. Extensive files on the Nuremberg trials And you watch them whenever they're airing I guess I should have known When you bought a new bone for your puppies Named Goebbels and Gehring You showed up late to our very first date I said, how are you? You said, white power Call me paranoid, but I'm not overjoyed When you ask me if I want to shower I think you're a Nazi don't be lying, baby. Are you a Nazi? Are you anti-Zion, maybe? Your every dress is monogram SS. You hold an Aryan picnic and bash. And it makes me irate when you say I look great when I wear a little tiny mustache. Your social politics say that races don't mix And you call it pure blood pollution And whenever I'm sad you say it's not so bad For every problem there's a final solution I think you're a Nazi Let's talk about the seeding ground for the rise of Nazism See if there are any comparisons there There was a key phrase in something I read That was the appeal of Hitler to Germans who were living drab lives. Germany and its people felt very oppressed and, you know, very much reduced in their circumstances after World War I because the, the settlements from the war were, were punitive and really did leave them stripped in a lot of ways financially and otherwise. And I at least see the parallel between people who have, you know, their lives have been, their, their economic lives have been decimated by, by a long-standing recession. They don't feel particularly empowered. And I want to know how far I can carry out that analogy before it falls apart. Do you see parallels, Edith, to where the, where the Germans were then and where classes of Americans are now? I do see parallels, but I think 
not in the way you're suggesting. Okay. Um, I understand people commonly say that Hitler, as well as Trump, are speaking to the dispossessed, right? And we do have statistics that show that as unemployment rose in Germany over the 1920s, the popularity of the Nazis rose. And he absolutely was speaking to the dispossessed. But what I think is important to acknowledge about both the Trump phenomenon and the rise of Nazism is that these were big tent movements, that Trump is indeed appealing to a wide variety of people. He really does. I mean, we talk about um, the unemployed and people without, you know, college or, or high school degrees. But he, if you look at the exit polls, he really is crossing an entire swath of society, as did Hitler. And one of the reasons Nazism prevailed is because it was able to cut across these cleavages, religious, gender, class, urban, rural, and um, they were both big tent phenomena. That brings up something that, that's really stood out to me, and that is, Charles, how easy it is to characterize too broadly the people who are in support of Trump. And we've been hearing in polls lately that for people who, who think that Trump may not get the nomination, they'll scoot over and vote for Bernie Sanders. That, you know, there's, you don't expect to hear that. And it's easy to say, well, you know, they're stupid. They're low-information voters, and we're finding out that's not true either. Yeah. This is a very complex question. And one thing to think about is, is people say, well, we have declining living standards, the middle class is being squeezed, and this is what's giving rise to Trump. Um, I have a lot of trouble with that type of simplistic one-on-one, -on -one, that's what's giving rise to Trump. Uh, we have in this country a long history of, of racially charged and xenophobic politics. Uh, that's been going on for a long time. And it didn't start with Trump, but, uh, uh, and it's been... It's been concentrated in the Republican Party over the last 20, 30 years as, as they increasingly uh, adapted to this type of racial resentment and xenophobia inside the Republican Party. What's, to me, I think the most important thing that's going on today is that the Republican Party has is giving voice to this in ways that it's never done before mm -hmm. and more brutal forms than it's ever done before. I'm not sure that that shows much about what's going on in society. It's more shows what's going on in the Republican Party. And I think that's important to think about. And I think that's one of the things the comparison with Hitler may be useful for. I mean, Hitler came to power in a time after the extraordinary shock of the First World War, which is a devastating war, which Germany lost, uh, national humiliation in the wake of the war. Um, and then as Either points out, by the end of the 1920s, there's this terrible depression in Germany, which throws uh, millions of people out of work. Hitler rose in that climate. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really see we have that climate today. We have, you know, what is it, 72 months of steady job growth. We have, you know, yes, there's squeezing of incomes have been flat for a long time for many workers. That's not what's going on here. This is a tapping of racial and other resentments, uh, and this is which is not new. What's new is the institutional frame in which the Republican Party is giving voice to this. I'm going to push back a bit on what might seem like minutia, but I know that there's a lot of dissent over what's happening with the job picture because job growth and unemployment figures don't reflect all the people who've fallen out of the system. People who've been looking for work for over five years, uh, people who are, yeah, they're employed, but they're working five jobs and they have no, no other coverage. I mean, so I, I just wonder about your point that it's not so much reflective of that. Well, we've had hard economic times before. Mm -hmm. We've had high unemployment before. We've had flat wages before. Uh, 
We've never had a leader of one of the two main parties, or at least in the modern period, which expresses xenophobia and racism in such brutal forms. Uh, and I think that to say one is caused by the other is a little bit simplistic. Of course, we have discontented people. I'd also agree with Edith. This is a broad tent. This is a. This includes very prosperous people mm -hmm. who are very excited about Trump's uh, big tax cuts for the wealthy population, which has nothing to do with uh, flat wages. And a lot of what he talks about has nothing to do with flat wages. So I would, I step back from that. It's that it's. This is just an expression of hard times. I think it. Uh, we have a lot of racial resentment in this country. We have a lot of xenophobia. It's not new. What's new is the political strength that it has within the Republican Party. And I think we have to look at the institutions of the Republican Party, how it's evolved over the last 30 plus years to understand why it has that strength. When the Fuhrer says, me is the master race, me heil, heil, right in the Fuhrer's face, not to love the Fuhrer, is the greatest grace, so be heil, heil, right in the Fuhrer's face. When her Goebbels says, me own the world in space, me heil, heil, right in her Goebbels' face. When her Goering says, they'll never bomb this place, me heil, heil. Richard Spencer came to town, the uh, neo-Nazi, uh, the Mr. Sieg Heil. It's, uh, it's gotten around the news quite a bit. He was here on Monday with his little white nationalist group, the Atlantic. Uh, it's the Atlantic, right, Daniel? Yeah, yeah. Has the, uh, has the article on the video uh, you can check out. And, uh, well, you know, here's just, you know, one of the clips uh, you know, uh, you'll recall Heil Hitler literally meant hail Hitler. And, um, you know, Sieg Heil, hail victory. Uh, so anyhow, here's here's uh, Richard Spencer with his little group of white nationalists, actually at the Ronald Reagan building. Here he is. Hail Trump. Hail our people. Hail victory. <laughs> These guys are, uh, are doing the long salute here all around the room. They're holding up their, the Hitler salute. And, uh, you know, this, this, uh, here's another, this is clip number two. This is Richard Spencer uh, talking about, you know, the white race. No one will honor us for losing gracefully. No one mourns the great crimes committed against us. For us, it is conquer or die. Right. And here he is talking about what it is to be white. To be white is to be a striver, a crusader, an explorer, and a conqueror. We build, we produce, we go upward. And we recognize the central lie of American race relations. We don't exploit other groups. We, we don't gain anything from their presence. They need us and not the other way around. And, and here he is finally saying America is a white nation. America was, until this past generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our creation. It is our inheritance. And it belongs to us.
more Hitler salutes uh, in the meantime. So one guy comes up to one of the Hitler saluting guys and goes, there's somebody behind you with a camera. <laughs> so I shouldn't laugh. Uh, the uh, Stephen Rosenfeld over at Alternet. Soon after Spencer started slamming the mainstream media, he jeered, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German. And the crowd shouted back. Now, do you, you know, do you think the average person knows enough German to know the Nazi era word for lying press? Well, Richard Spencer said, you know, he, he talked about the, he said, perhaps we should refer to them in the original German. The crowd shouted back, Lügenpresse. And, uh, you know, then he said America was until this day, as I just played, until this last generation, a white country designed for ourselves and our posterity. It is our re creation, our inheritance. It belongs to us. We have seen an explosion in hate crimes. In Germany in the 1930s, Stephen Rosenfeld writes uh, over at Alternet in an article titled, as, as Trump Builds His Authoritarian Presidency, Echoes of 1930s Germany uh, and 1950s McCarthyism Abound. In Germany, Nazi-supporting paramilitary groups created their own arrest, detention, and torture stations during the first year of Hitler's rule. The authorities didn't stop them, and most of the American journalists stationed there at the time didn't want to conclude the paramilitary violence as part of a larger societal trend. What those outside targeted circles in Germany didn't see at the time were the steps being taken to start transforming a de democratic republic to authoritarian rule. During the first months of Hitler's rule, German authorities told foreign journalists and diplomats that attacks by fascist thugs were outliers and would soon end. There were even official denunciations by the government, but it didn't stop. Those who did see it for what it was were frequently dismissed as too political, prejudiced, and shrill. Finally, we have Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi, saying, or the white supremacist, whatever he calls himself, I do think we have a psychic connection. You can say a deeper connection with Donald Trump in a way that we simply do not have with most Republicans. Yeah, I think so. So the New York Times then asked the question, the country now finds itself at a particular dangerous moment with advocates of discrimination and hate emboldened as they have not been for decades. Given the danger of violence and bigotry these groups pose, why then would Mr. Trump, who is so offended by the Hamilton cast's plea for tolerance, remain silent? Mr. Trump can find more time to rebuke legitimate satire, but not the hateful speech being wielded. Well, let me share with you, I, I, I have, I've shared this before, but it's worth revisiting. I wrote this back in uh, November of 2005. You can find it on our website at TomHartman.com. It's a book review of a book by Milton Mayer. Uh, it's titled, They Thought They Were Free. Milton Mayer in uh, the 19, early 1940s after World War II was a reporter at, in Chicago. He was Jewish, a very, very good reporter. And uh, he traveled to Germany after the war to figure out who were these Germans who allowed this to happen. Not, not, the, not the, the frenzied, you know, see Heilers. Who were the average Germans? Who were, the, you know, the, and he ended up, he talked to a baker, he talked to a construction worker, he talked to a college professor. None of these people had been active during the, the Hitler time in supporting Hitler. They also had not been active in the opposition. They simply conducted their business throughout, throughout all those years. And he was like, what the heck is going on? 
he wanted to know. So he opens the book by noting that he was prepared to hate the Nazis he was going to meet. But he wrote, they, he discovered that they were just as human as the rest of us. This is uh, Milton Mayer, what he said. He's passed away, by the way, now. He said, I liked them. I couldn't help it. Again and again, as I sat or walked with one or another of my 10 Nazi friends, I was overcome by the same sensation that I'd gotten, that had gotten in the way of my newspaper reporting in, in Chicago in years before in the 1930s. I liked Al Capone. I liked the way he treated his mother. He treated her better than I treated mine. He writes about how uh, Milton Mayer then writes about how if he were to die tonight, at least he could look back on some good he had done. That his Nazi friends would never be able to die in peace, knowing the evil they had participated in, if even by acts of omission, that that evil could never be wiped clean. And he dreaded that Americans would ever feel the same for acts that we may one day commit as a nation. He, write, he writes, and I quote, now I see a little better how Nazism overcame Germany, not by attack from without or by subversion from within, but with a whoop and a holler. It was what most Germans wanted. Or under pressure of combined reality and illusion, came to want. They wanted it, they got it, and they liked it. I came home a little afraid for my country, afraid of what I might, uh, of what it might want, and get, and like, under combined pressure of reality and illusion. Pretty astonishing. We'll be back. So we're reading from Milton Mayer's book. They thought they were free. Once again, Milton Mayer, a a uh, reporter from uh, Chicago, I think it was the Sun uh, or the Sun Times. I, I, back in in the forties, it, it may have had a different name, and I, 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 I don't, I don't have the book right in front of me right now. But he was a very, very, a very well respected reporter, and he went over to Germany and interviewed these these average people. And this is from one of his interviews with um, a college professor, a German college professor, who throughout you know the Hitler years and the war and everything just kept teaching college. And he says, this separation of government from people, this widening of the gap took place so gradually and so sensibly, so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms, and there were real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me, unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had the occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to? One mo no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in a field sees the corn growing. Until one day it is over his head. Pastor Niemöller, again this is his college professor, Nazi friend that he talked to in Germany. Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy. But after all, he was not a communist, so he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists, and he was a little uneasier. But still, he wasn't a socialist. He did nothing. And then the schools and the press and the Jews and so on. And he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing. And then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman. And he did something, but then it was too late. Yes, I said. 
writes Milton Mayer. You see, my colleague went on, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. Believe me, this is true. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for the one great shocking occasion, thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even to talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you're not in the habit of doing it. It's not just fear, fear of standing alone that restrains you. It is also genuine uncertainty. Uncertainty is a very great and important factor. And instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, everyone seems happy. One hears little protests, certainly sees none. You know, in France or Italy, there are slogans against the government painted on the walls and fences. But in Germany, outside of the great cities, perhaps, there's not even this. In my university community, in my own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whose certainly feel as you do. What do they say? They say, it's not so bad. You're seeing things. You're an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. You are saying that this must lead to that. And you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes. But how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party intimidate you. On the other hand, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. But the one great shocking occasion, when tens or hundreds of thousands will join you in the streets, that one occasion never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and smallest, thousands, yes, millions would be sufficiently shocked. If, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come immediately after the German firm sticker on the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33. But of course, this isn't the way it happens. In between come all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. Step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you didn't make a stand at step B, then why should you at step C? And so on for step D. And then one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy in some minor incident. In my case, it was my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew, swine. Suddenly it collapses all at once, and you see that everything, everything has changed, and changed completely under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you were in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, the spirit has changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility even to God. He wraps it up. He says, uh, I, do, I do not see, even now, how we could have stopped it. Many, many times since it happened, I've pondered that pair of great maximum, maxims, principus obsta and finem rispus, resist the beginnings and consider the end. But one must foresee the end in order to resist or even see the beginnings. One must foresee the end clearly and certainly. And how is this to be done by ordinary men or even by extraordinary men?